Father, we come tonight, and you are our lighthouse. You are what we are looking for in the dark. And knowing that you will be there, even when we wander, is important to us. And I pray, God, that you would be with us tonight, that you would guide us in what we need to learn from Brian's sermon tonight. And I just pray that you would bless this service. In Jesus' name. be seated. Kids, you are not dismissed yet, so hang, hang tight for just a minute. <clears throat> hang tight. We'll get you out of here soon. Maybe. Or maybe you have to listen to my boring sermon. I don't know. Hey, I just want to make our church family aware and, and kind of bring something to your attention that's pretty exciting and celebrate that tonight. Um, as you know, I think a lot of you know at least, we have an adoption fund as a church. We started it three years ago. And initially, we had $10,000 that was contributed to that fund. And over the years, as a church, every month, we just set aside $500 that goes over into that fund. And then you can donate directly into that fund as well. And so the point of it is, when a family wants to adopt a child, it's expensive. I mean, you're talking $30,000, $40,000 to adopt a child. And if there is a Christian family willing to bring a child into their home and raise them in Christ... We want to help partner with them, and we want to help cover some of that expense. And so we've done that. Um, Jamie, who used to help lead worship here, they're still in the adoption process, but I talked to him last week, and they're, they're halfway there on their fundraising. They've got their name in the bank, so they're moving along in that process. So I want to celebrate that. Uh, we had another family. They were friends of the Iwanics, didn't go to church here, but we knew them. We were mutually connected to them, learned about their walk with Christ, the Lockharts. They adopted, what, about a year ago, right, guys? About a year ago, a uh, little baby Twain. Uh, they go to our kids' school, so I get to see Twain now at the soccer games and stuff, and I get to see this child that we had a part in the adoption, even if just a little part, financially helping them with that adoption, and so that's excited. Well, I want to make you aware of the third time we're doing this now. There's a family here, the Nations family. Hey, guys, stand, go ahead and come up here, actually. Jeff, can I come down on the floor? Is that okay? Yeah, go ahead and come up here real quick. This is the Nations family, and I know a lot of you may already know these guys because you're a past. What is your pastoral role at Riverside? What do you? Executive pastor, ooh, the boss man right here at, at Riverside. Um, you've been there for a long time. Like for, for several years, people are like, do you know this Matt Nations guy? You guys have a lot in common. You should get to know each other. And, and be honest, the first time we met in person was tonight. But we've been emailing and texting for about six or seven months, and they've kind of been guiding me through their adoption journey and uh, made a case to us to help support their adoption. Uh, I said, well, let's go to your home church. What are they doing? So they went to their home church and got their home church to, to partner with them. Them an adoption, I said, great, then we would love to partner with you as well in that adoption. So we let them know this week we're giving them $5,000 from Refuge towards their adoption, and that check has already been mailed and sent to your adoption agency. And so thank you for everybody who has contributed to that. And I just wanted you to meet this family because I'm going to have him back and preach at some point this summer when I'm on vacation. So first of all, I want you to meet him for that. It's like we're paying you for that actually right now. But... <laughs> Uh, but I, I wanted to pray for this family like we do as a church as well as they go through this journey. And so if you would just pray with me, we can't gather around because of COVID, but if you just outstretch your arm to let them know you're praying along with us, I just want to pray for Jess and Kai and for uh, all you guys here. So let's pray. Father God, um, you are great and you are glorious and you call us your adopted sons and daughters and so what a beautiful thing when a family says, you know, I want to live out the gospel in our life by illustrating that, by, by taking a child that does not share genetics with us, but we're shared in Christ. And so to bring that child into their family, to raise them for 18, 19, 20 years, to know you, to love you, to serve you. And so God, we just pray for uh, Matt and his family here that as they go through this process, that there would be peace because we know there are going to be trials and challenges that come because that's how the process goes. And so as they go through the process, we just pray for peace over this family. God, we pray for doors to be opened as they go through this process, that things be made clear because there are going to be questions that come up and decisions that have to be made. And so, God, just make the answers clear as they go through this process. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And that's also part of us, uh, one of our, uh, we have eight basic themes as a church. One of our, our 
Cornerstones is, is being one church. We believe that there is one church, one universal church of Christ. And so part of being one church is partnering with other congregations in this local market. And so we're just glad that we get to be a part of Riverside vicariously through you guys and partner together on that. Hey, I want to welcome everybody here. There's been a lot of new faces kind of coming in and out since our relaunch from COVID back in August. And I thought this week there's so many people still meeting at home that are gathering with us virtually. They haven't met a lot of you people. So I'm really excited for when they get to come back. I know a few of them are starting to get the COVID shots when they get to come back and meet you guys. But I also want to mention to you, the people that are still at home right now, they're at some of my absolutely favorite people in the world. So I'm looking forward to the time when you guys who are new here get to meet all of our families that haven't made it back into this building yet. I got a sheet of paper here. Just a legal, or I guess a little yellow piece of paper. I got some, I got nothing written on it here. This is actually a paper. The stuff I have written on here is everything that God owes you. There's nothing written on the paper. If you can see nothing here, everything on this sheet of paper, everything that's on here is everything that you're entitled to from God. He owes you nothing. Is that hard to hear? Well, this is church, and so you're going to say, no, of course God doesn't owe me anything. I, I get it. But the way we live our lives and the way the thoughts tend to run in our heads would kind of indicate otherwise. We're going through the Gospel of Luke. We're looking from Jesus all the way to Christ. And we went through the Gospel of Luke last year. I've taught through the Gospel of Luke in a Sunday school class in the past. And every time I've done it, I've skipped past this story that we're going to look at this week. And it's easy to, to kind of miss. You know, Jesus is starting his ministry. There's this little blurb here that, you know, he preaches to some people and they try to throw him off a cliff. And then he goes calls his disciples. And it's just kind of easy to skip past it because, honestly, it's a little confusing. Like, what happened? They love him. They hate him. And so we're going to go through that story tonight. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, uh, I'm using the New Living Translation, the way I teach is verse by verse through the Bible, and so if you want to read along on, on your Bible, or the words will be on the screen, and it begins with that word that we talked about last week, then, then, that means we need to look back to what has been happening, then, after the birth of Jesus, after the announcement of Jesus by John the Baptist, after the baptism of Jesus, after the temptation of Jesus, all of which the Holy Spirit has been a part of, then, Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. It's been a theme throughout Luke. It's going to be a theme in his prequel or his sequel acts that the power of the Spirit is there in Jesus and in the life of the believers. It says, then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit. Reports about Jesus spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Now, in this time, um, synagogues didn't have a designated weekly preacher. They didn't have a pastor that stood up that was their guy every week that, that preached. And so when people would come through town, and if they were a well-known leader, obviously visitors, they would be asked to speak. And Jesus is kind of going around Galilee, and he's going to synagogues. And as he gets there, because of his gaining reputation, he's asked to speak. For most of history, entertainment has been pretty hard to come by. I'm going through Netflix last night. It seems like it's still pretty hard to come by today. But in the first century, a gifted speaker, man, they were a major source of entertainment. It was that of the gladiators, I think. And Jesus, he's a good speaker, and he captivates his listeners, and he has this incredible insight and depth. And, oh, by the way, he does a few miracles as well. So Jesus is there, and he's preaching, and it says, When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Now, if you remember, Nazareth is a small rural town, three, four hundred people max in this town. It's, it's his hometown. I grew up in a town like this. We had seven or eight hundred people in my town. You knew everyone. Everyone knew you. Everyone knew your business. The local CPA was also the local taxidermist. That's, that's what a small town is like. And Jesus has been away from his town now for a while. He's been out doing ministry, but now he's returned home. And his hometown's been keeping up with him. They've been hearing stories. They're excited. He's here. Hometown boy, all grown up. A local celebrity. And it says in verse 17, the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. 
So Jesus is there in the synagogue, and the synagogue order of service, you know, just like we have an order of service here, they had an order of service, and so they would come in just like we do, and they would sing psalms. They would sing songs of praise to God. And on this day, of course, since Jesus is there, they made sure they got their best singer to come help lead those psalms. And then there would be an opening prayer. And on this day, of course, they'd get their most devout, best-spoken prayer person to come do that. Then there would be the confession of faith, and it would be kind of um, characterized on Deuteronomy 6. The Lord is one God. Love him with all your heart. Teach this to your kid. Bind these words to your heart. Write them on the doors. And then there would be a reading from either the law or the prophets, sometimes both. In each book of the scripture, whether it was from the law or from the prophets, it would be on this one scroll that they would unscroll and read. Now, synagogues would have many scrolls because there's many books of the Old Testament, but Nazareth is a small, poor town, and these scrolls were expensive. And so the smaller your synagogue, the smaller your town, the less of these scrolls that you would have. Oh, I forgot to dismiss the kids. I'm sorry, Tanya. They're like, they're like, this is lame. (laughs) Bye, kids. They only had this one scroll. They had multiple scrolls. They probably didn't have many. And they have this scroll, though, of Isaiah because, I mean, everybody loves Isaiah. You've got to have Genesis, Exodus. You've got to have Isaiah. And so they hand this cherished, well-worn, well-read, well-known scroll to Jesus. And Luke says he got it. Jesus unrolled the scroll, and then he found the place where this was written. Now, the, what would happen is the reader of the scroll would actually sit down and begin reading the scroll. And the congregation, the listeners, would stand up. I've always thought we need to make refuge a little more biblical and take upon that approach. But Jesus, he's not told as they hand him the scroll what he needs to read. He gets to thumb through and decide what he wants to read. And as he thumbs through the scroll, there's anticipation in the room. What is he going to read? There's nervous whispers. What passage is he going to come to? And he stops at Isaiah 61 Verse 18, he's quoting Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Verse 20 says, He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. And now all eyes of the synagogue, it says, looked at him intently. See, what comes next now is the exposition of the text. Just like we do here, he would read it, and then he would explain it. People didn't come to hear him read Isaiah. They came to hear him teach. They want to be entertained by his charisma. They want a beautiful, eloquent, earth-shattering sermon. And so they look at him, and they're waiting. And he begins, he says in verse 21, The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this day. And then he stands up, God bless, love y'all, see you next week. It's the shortest sermon ever. It's one sentence. But what he's essentially said is this. He's saying, I am the sermon. My life is the sermon. Now the section he read is connected to the servant passages in Isaiah. It's where Isaiah is prophesying that one day one would come, a Christ, an anointed one, would come and make everything right. And Jesus has said, that's me. I am that person. I'm the one the Spirit of the Lord has descended upon. I'm the one who will set the captives free. I'm the one who will allow the blind to see. I'm the one who will free the oppressed. I'm the one who will bring good news to the poor. And after he makes this audacious statement, verse 22 says, Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. See, surprisingly, the people aren't freaked out or upset that he's claiming to be the Messiah. But here it is. This is their hometown boy. Maybe he is the one. Could he be the Christ? They even say, how can this be? Isn't this Joseph's son? And that's not a negative statement. They're not saying, how could it be poor Joseph's son? He's a reject or whatever. They're not saying that. They're not doing like the, could anything good come from Nazareth that we'll hear later? What this is, this is a statement of pride. Could this be one of ours? Could this be Joseph's son? Could the Christ have grown up on our streets? And if Jesus had ended there, the people would have left content. They would have been, what a great message. Man, things are about to change. Our David is here. 
Israel is going to destroy those pagans. They're going to show them who God's is and who God's favor rests upon. But Jesus is going to stir the pot. He knows by their reaction that they don't quite get what he's saying. And so verse 23 says, then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. See, they're filled with this wonder. They're filled with this pride. They're expecting Jesus to do some miracles for them. They're feeling entitled. Where are the oppressed? Where are the captives? Where are the poor? Most of us aren't blind, but three out of four ain't bad. So Jesus, how about some healings right here in Nazareth? Because we're struggling. We need it. How about we see some of that awe and wonder? Did you bring some weapons with you so we can get this revolution started? Verse 24, though, he says, but I tell you the truth. That's in Luke, we call those, or in Scripture, really, we call those amen statements. And that's the first one recorded in Luke. Amen uh, means so be it or may it be so. And so what he's essentially saying is, what I'm about to say is the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And don't miss this. It's important. He says, I tell you the truth. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. That's a weird statement. People are like, hmm. Not sure what that means. I mean, we, we just accepted you, Jesus, with open arms. We welcomed you into our town, into our synagogue. But Jesus knows, and he knows his truth, and himself is going to be rejected. Just like Israel had rejected God and the truth that his prophets spoke in ancient times. He's pointing backwards. And so he begins to tell these stories now. Verse 25 says, Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zephyrath and the land of Sidon. See, Elijah had a similar ministry that John the Baptist had, calling people to repentance, or a similar ministry that Jesus is going to have, calling a a nation to repentance, calling people to turn back to God. But just like John the Baptist and Jesus, just in the ancient times, the people didn't listen. So the backstory, if you go back and read this story, there was a drought and there was a famine. There's a lot of that in the Old Testament. And since the people didn't listen to God, God sends Elijah, not to them, but he sends them to go help a distant city outside of Israel. And he sends them to this poor widow in that city. And if that's not bad enough, this widow that he sends Elijah to help is a Gentile. That means she's a pagan. That means she's an idol worshiper. That means she's a moral outcast. That means she's a religious outcast. And on top of that, she's a she, a woman, low value in the Old Testament culture. And so this woman, pagan, she's not living the right way. She's not saying the right thing. She's not keeping the Sabbath. She's certainly not going to temple. And yet God miraculously multiplies her supply of flour and oil to feed her, her son, and Elijah throughout the famine. Even though there were many in need in Israel, God sends Elijah to help this undeserving foreigner. And the people are like, dang, Jesus, well, well, at least that lady was poor. At least she was a widow. So we we can get the compassion with that. So he goes on. So, okay, verse 27. And many in Israel had leprosy. Our people had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. Different prophet. Always get them confused, but different prophet. So sent them to the prophet Elijah, but, but he only healed uh, one man, and his name was Naaman, a Syrian. And so God sends the prophet Elisha to the Syrian Naaman. And I'll give you, again, so you don't have to go look it up, the backstory here. It's this pandemic of leprosy. It's spreading throughout the nation of Israel. It's really bad. People are really sick. And people, if they're not dying, they wish they were dying. It was extreme quarantine time. Couldn't have any contact with others, much worse than what we're dealing with. You couldn't go to God's temple. You couldn't worship. But God doesn't send Elijah to help his own people. God sends him to this man, Naaman. This guy's different than the widow because he's not financially poor. He's rich. And he's also not a good person. He's the commander of the Syrian army. And that's an army that had killed many in Israel. And so this is an army, and this is the commander of an army that oppressed and attacked God's people. And the implication here in these two examples is Jesus is equating the people in front of him, the people of Nazareth, with ancient Israel, who because of their unwillingness to turn to God, God then turns instead to help others. Verse 28, when they heard this, 
the people in the synagogue were furious. See, people had this expectation that if Jesus was the Messiah, he owed them. Jesus rebukes their entitlement, and so begins this downward spiral. First they were amazed, then it turned to doubt, now it's turned to anger, and as we're going to see, it's going to turn to pitchforks and torches. Verse 29, jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him off the cliff. See, they considered this blasphemy because he is rebuking God's people, and a rebuke of God's people is the same as a rebuke of God himself. And so this mob justified, made up of his former friends, his former admirers, is now ready to kill Jesus. And I hope real quick your mind is flashing forward to the crucifixion when Jesus is coming into town on the donkey and there's so much, so much foreshadowing here. The people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the people call for Jesus to be cast out of the city and he's taken to another hill called Calvary. He's murdered for a blasphemous statement. But this little story ends here in verse 30. As they intend to push him over the cliff, it says he passed through the crowd and went on his way. Just escapes. Jesus' hour had not come. It's not part of God's plan of redemption, and so Jesus slips away unnoticed. And we'll see this multiple times in the Gospel of Luke and, and John, where it's not yet time for Jesus' death. God is in control, and Jesus will slip away when others want to murder him. But my point is tonight with this story, I think the big theme is that the Gospel is offensive. So much so that these people wanted to murder Jesus. And so if you've never found the good news of Jesus offensive, then you've never heard the gospel. If the gospel doesn't make you squirm a little bit in your seat and a little bit uncomfortable, you've never been exposed to the absolute depths of God's grace. The people of Nazareth, they thought, you know, we're pretty good people. We're moral people. We believe the Bible. We do our best to follow the law. And then Jesus shows up and they get excited as he reads Isaiah. They're like, well, our rights have been oppressed by the bad people. Obviously, Jesus has come to give us good people victory over the bad people. Wonderful sermon, pastor. And they start to slow clap. I mean, it's just, they're going. But Jesus knows that this reaction means they don't get it. Because he's just made it clear. He's coming to offer salvation only to the poor and the blind. But maybe they're still there like, that's us, Jesus, we're poor. This is rural Nazareth. I mean, yeah, some people have it worse than us, but, but a lot of people have it much better than we do too. And blind, I don't know, but since I turned 45, I can't read the small print. That should qualify us, right? See, they still think that God owes them. And Jesus knows their thoughts, as he does so often. And so he proceeds to define what it means to be poor and blind. And he tells the story of this woman who is, in fact, financially poor, which makes sense. And although she's not physically blind, she's spiritually blind to the commands of God. And then he tells the story of a man who isn't financially poor. In fact, he's wealthy, but is spiritually and morally bankrupt. And that's who God sends his prophets to. And upon hearing that these are the kinds of people that the Messiah intends to save, the people... Jesus' people feel betrayed, and they attempt to kill their hometown hero. But that's the truth that Jesus is relaying, that the gospel is only for the spiritually poor. So we read the teachings of Jesus. You know, you can be led to believe that salvation is also only for the financially poor because he talks so much about money and it being a hindrance for us. No one can serve two masters for we'll hate the one and love the other. The rich young ruler comes in and says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus says, sell your possessions, give them to the poor. Man leaves dejected. Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than uh, um, something to pass through an eye of a needle. Rich man to enter heaven than for a camel, camel to pass through an eye of a needle. But here tonight, Jesus doesn't use only poor people examples. He uses this rich man, Naaman, to help define what it means to be poor. And so it can't mean that you have to be financially poor to receive salvation. And it can't mean that poor people are somehow automatically in because they're poor. There's a gospel called poverty gospel that teaches that to a degree, but that's not what Jesus is teaching. But just as important, it's not about being a good person so that God will bless you with wealth and health. That's called a prosperity gospel, a whole different gospel again. 
Jesus has come to teach the gospel, the good news of grace. And so in both of these examples, with Naaman and the widow, they're religious, they're moral outcasts, they're spiritually poor, they've done absolutely nothing to earn God's favor, and that's precisely who Jesus says he's come to save. Again, these are the people who have the sheet of paper, and they know that God doesn't owe them anything. This is what God owes them, but they also know that this is what they have to offer God, absolutely nothing. See, we'd like it a lot better if Jesus, you know, said, look, bad people, all right, they need saving too, just like you good guys. So I've come to save them also. But it's not also. Jesus says, I've only come to save the spiritually poor. I've only come to save the bad people, the spiritually bankrupt, the spiritually blind, the emotional train wrecks, the users, the abusers, the liars, the narcissists, the gossips. There were plenty of good people in the time of Elijah, but that prophet isn't sent to any of them. He only goes to Naaman, a nasty, deplorable person. There were plenty of people in Israel who had all the right beliefs, who were living the right way, but Elijah only goes to this pagan, idol-worshiping woman. See, Jesus is contrasting the people he's sent to with the people that's in front of him. He's contrasting the spiritually poor with the spiritually middle class. Luke, there's a story, we looked at it last year, so we probably won't this year, but I'll refresh you, the prodigal son story. And, you know, it's a familiar story. One of the sons runs off, he squanders his dad's wealth, he disobeys, and the elder brother, the good brother, he stays home. And so one brother is immoral, one brother is moral, and yet this prodigal son who wasted everything, didn't obey the father, he comes home and he's welcomed home into the father's arms. And the elder son then, the good son, he's furious. And he says, God, Dad, I never disobeyed you. There's anger. See, under his veneer of goodness, there is this deep anger. It's because the elder son had spiritual middle-class values. Poor people, those who are living in abject poverty, man, it's survival. I mean, if you go to a third world nation, they're not thinking about the stuff we're thinking about. It's food, it's water, it's shelter, or I'm going to die. That's poverty. But those of us in middle class, man, we're constantly trying to jockey position, see where we rank with others, trying to one-up each other. There's this thing, conspicuous consumption. We just buy stuff for the sake of consuming things, and we have this great sense of entitlement. See, a spiritually middle-class person, they like to negotiate with God. God, I'll do this for you, but then I need you to also do this for me. A spiritually middle-class person, they like to question God. God, I've, I've been on Team Jesus now for several years, and how is that person just as valuable to you as I am? Why is their life actually better than mine when I'm here serving in church every week and they never come? If you're a God of justice, how is what I'm seeing right now justice? Spiritually middle-class people, though most of all, like to feel superior to others. Sure, I'm not spiritually rich, because you know, this, this church, Jesus is only spiritually rich. I get that. But, but I'm doing okay in my spirituality. I mean, I'm making ends meet. I've, I've got a house. i got two cars. i got 1.89 kids. I'm not spiritually broke like those people. I'm not spiritually broke like that person. And maybe you don't say that out loud, but it's there. When someone's not living right, you know, you feel a little superior to them. Perhaps you maybe even want to confront them about their sin. Or most of you want to challenge your pastor to confront them about their sin. Maybe your superiority is displayed by being uncomfortable around those you think are beneath you. Karen and I, I was telling Tanya earlier tonight, we used to do these homeless dinners at our former church, and we would lead them once a month. It was Monday night, and we did took a Monday night a month, and I did it because I thought that's what Jesus wanted me to do, and I often dreaded it. Monday would come, I'm like, daggone, I don't want to go down there and do this, and I had compassion, I think, for the people, but you know, I also like to feel good about myself, like, look at me, I'm, I'm serving these, these poor people over here that, you know, a little bit beneath me, they don't, don't have it as good as me. And the true sign was, is when I was there, I was awkward. And I'd get uncomfortable around the people. 
And I would get angry because the volunteers didn't show up. And I would get angry with the church because I didn't feel like they supported the ministry well enough. See, what happened is my middle-class spiritual values couldn't help but bubble out to the surface because they're always lying there beneath. I say this all the time. If refuge is not the church attracting the same kind of people that Jesus attracted and repelling the same kind of people that Jesus repelled, we're doing it wrong. I mean, what are we even doing? So I thought tonight, I'm going to try to make a few of you squirm a little bit with the gospel and what this really looks like. So what if, this has been the news this week a little bit, what if a transgendered person walked in here tonight? Walked in, haven't been here before, they sit down, they took a seat. How would you react? What emotions would you feel? And I know you're thinking, oh, you know, we'd love them. (laughs) We'd be kind. We'd smile at them. What if they sit next to you? What if they start to strike up a conversation? Would you feel a little awkward? What would you say after church when no one else was listening? What if they came to your Bible study? What if they started a Bible study in this church? What if they were at yours and you immediately, would you immediately go to Genesis 2 and say, God clearly created men and women? Is that your first thought? What if they started hosting a group in their home? Would you be angry? Would you again try to murder your pastor and tell them they need to stop that? See, what we're doing there is we're making an assumption that God doesn't have a plan for this person's life that he somehow brought into our building. You're making an assumption that you see things better than God sees things. But maybe that didn't didn't quite get you. You're like, I'd be cool with that. No problem. What What if tonight... We had one of the Capitol rioters come into refuge. You know, those guys that stormed the Capitol. It's the guy that's sitting on Nancy Pelosi's desk with his feet up. He comes to church tonight. Take you through those same questions. Starts a Bible study. Sits next to you. How would you feel? Let me twist it a little bit more. What, what, if, what if that person is an outspoken racist? They start coming to church here, and they're still spewing their racism. And beyond that, a good singer. <laughs> they won't come sing on the worship team. What do we do? And I know you're like, come on, Brian. I, I see what you're doing there. I, I get it. But, but you're just trying to, you're trying to push it here. But that's how those of us who are spiritual middle class think. That's how we know we're spiritually middle class. Because we think we're getting by with God pretty well in our lives. Not great, but, but we're getting by with God. We're doing okay spiritually. I mean, I'm... I don't give financially to the church like God commands, but but that's not really a big deal. That's not enough to exclude me from being active in this church and serving in this church. I gossip. I mean, I guess if that's what you call it, but I only say what's true, so I don't know if it's really gossip, but that shouldn't exclude me from being a part of a small group or even leading one in my home. I mean, sure, I yelled at my kids last weekend because I was watching the Bucks game and it was close, but that's not the same as whatever sin you want to fill in the blank there. And listen, don't, don't email me this week and, you know, this email about we need to speak truth to others and all that stuff, call out a brother or sister in sin whose lives are going to be devastated by sin. Absolutely, we all know we need to do that. We all should know that that's up close and personal. That's when we've established really deep relations with with people. When we're closer with them than just about anybody else, not judging them from a distance. And then when we have those conversations, because we're aware of our own spiritual brokenness, they can be a lot more grace-filled. See, God's standard, his standard is perfection. Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what Jesus teaches. So the standard... That is set is perfection. And as soon as we fall short of that standard, we're broke. Completely, utterly, spiritually broke. There is no middle class. And so how do we avoid being blind to our poorness? Well, we stop comparing ourselves to others. We start spiritually ranking ourselves with others. We look beneath the surface and see the real dirt that's happening down deep inside. We search the motives of our hearts and see that even when we're obedient, it's a strategy to try to control God. We stop pointing out the specks in other people's lives while we ignore the planks in our own. We remember that the only thing that God owes us is death, 
and the only thing that we can give him and that we bring to our salvation is nothing. See, I want us to see tonight truly how amazing grace is, truly how radical the gospel is. I want us to see our own entitlement issues with God. And so let me give you a quick perspective that might put that in focus. America, we've been working on a, does it say America? Uh, America has been working on a vaccine. And we've been hoping and we've been praying and we know we need it. And finally that vaccine is developed and here it comes and it's going to be rolled out. And they got 100 million doses and Joe Biden, he gets up and he's like, great news, guys. We got 100 million doses. They're all ready to go and we're sending them to China. Would that tick you off? Would you want to throw Joe Biden off a cliff? You bet. I mean, we're Americans. We take care of our own first. China started this dang thing in the first place. Are you getting a sense of the offensiveness of Jesus' message to these people, the offensiveness of the gospel? Jesus tells these people in his hometown, the Messiah is here. After a long wait, after so much suffering, the Messiah is here and the rescue has come but it's not for you. It's only for those who are spiritually broke. See, biblically and historically, the people who first accept the gospel most easily, it's people on the outside. It's women. Often we see in Scripture, it's minorities. It is the financially poor. They tend to grab a hold of the gospel quicker than their counterparts. Why is that? mentioned that to Karen this week and we were talking and she said she had this idea of spiritual middle classness for a lot of her spiritual life until she experienced depression. When her eyes were opened, that by the grace of God only did she breathe her next breath and take her next step. See, our Americanism can cloud our gospel thinking. We got the American dream. If you work hard and if you have enough savvy, then you can achieve anything. No one should ever be poor. I hear people say that all the time. Try saying that to a black slave. Came to this country, they worked hard, they're smart, they put in their 20 hours a day, and somehow they never got rich. Which person, though, is going to be more open to the message of the gospel? Which person is going to see God's grace more clearly in their lives? And again, I'm, I'm not discounting hard work or choices or strategies or actions or habits. All of that is important. But if you can't see God's overabounding grace in your success, spiritual or otherwise in life, then you are absolutely blinded by spiritual middle classness. I was at the gym this week, and two guys are talking in the locker room. This sounds like the start of a really bad joke, but two guys are talking in the locker room. I hope they had clothes on when they were talking. They were three aisles over, but chances are they didn't because that's how those folks roll in there. But one guy appears to be trying to sell the other guy. It's a weird place to do this. He's trying to sell him hurricane shutters there in the gym locker room. This is why I avoid eye contact at all times in the gym, among other reasons. And I hear the guy, you know, he's trying to sell him hurricane shutters, and the other guy responds, my house was built in 1983 and went through Irma with no damage. I don't need your hurricane shutters. Do you hear the arrogance in that? As if somehow his house is special. His house isn't special. I'm an insurance agent. It's by God's grace that a direct hit did not hit and destroy his house. That's the kind of arrogance we all have, though. We are all one bad decision by ourselves or by somebody else away from a complete different life. That's the switch that turned on for me when I did those homeless dinners. I eventually realized I'm one step removed from being homeless. I'm one Percocet from addiction and finding myself here. I have nothing to do with my success. What country I'm born in, I have nothing to do with the color of my skin. I didn't get to pick that when I was born. I had nothing to do with my parental upbringing. Those are the parents God gave me. I have nothing to do with my IQ. I have nothing to do with my personality. I have nothing to do with my proclivities, the sin that somehow God gave me in my life. Everything I have, including the breath I have in my lungs to speak to you tonight, is by the grace of God. Do you see God's grace? Do you see your own spiritual poverty and blindness. I'm going to ask the band to come up because I want to have a time of response this evening. But let's finish this story. Here's what's interesting about this story, and, and this is the part that I'd never caught before until I really dug into it this week. 
Jesus never says he didn't come for the people of Nazareth. He doesn't outright say that. He just opens the door for all these others that are included in his kingdom. But because the people there in Nazareth are so outraged by Jesus' inclusivity, they can't see how poor they are in God's sight. That they are, or at least can be, the people that Jesus came for. If they would only be willing to look in the mirror and see their own spiritual poverty. So my challenge to you tonight is don't be spiritually middle class. Look beneath the surface. That the worst sinner in your life, the the one you despise the most, the politician you hate, your ex-husband, whoever the worst sinner that you can think of right now in your mind, that without being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we'd look much worse to our Father. And as you see your poverty, as you see your hopelessness, as you see how broke you are, Then I want us to hear Jesus' words from Isaiah again. I'm the one the Spirit of the Lord has descended upon. I'm the one who can set you free. I'm the one that can make the blind see. I'm the one who has come to bring good news to the poor. I'm the one whose favor will transform your life. Stop trying to build a spiritual savings account. You'll never save enough in that account to pay your debt. But Jesus has come. He gave up his infinite wealth to pay for a salvation we could never afford. That's what's amazing about grace, that Jesus saved poor, blind wretches like me and like you. And so I want to close tonight with just a time of confession, that we look at our inner selves, our internal poverty, We see how broke we are, how we don't have it figured out, how we don't have it all squared away, that we see beneath the surface, and then we lament how messed up and broken we are, but then we give thanks for God's amazing grace that restores us. And so we're going to sing. I'm going to ask you to stand, and as, as we sing, if you would just reflect and meditate and just confess those to God. Won't you stand?
make those confessions. Think about it. Really look inwardly. And then thank Him for His amazing grace. It is sufficient. He has enough grace and He has enough mercy for all of us. to you as you leave tonight that you take that knowledge of, of your poorness and let it humble you, but then let it allow you to take grace to others. I had um, back injections this week. I have a bad back, and um, when you get an injection, it takes the pain away, at least temporarily, and you feel better. And I got that on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I felt a lot better. But, you know, what's interesting is you can quickly forget just how bad the pain was. And that's, you know, and then it comes back and then you're reminded. But, but that's our spiritual life. We can forget 
just how amazing God's grace is. We can forget just how truly broken we were that a Savior had to die to save us. So allow that to propel you this week to be those broken vessels, to take that grace and that love and that mercy to everybody you encounter, even yourself. God bless. Love you all. See you next time. In my wrestling and in my doubts, in my failures, you won't walk out. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Whoa, you are the peace in my troubled